This episode of the Paddock Pass Podcast is brought to you by Renthal Street Clip-On Handlebars. Premium race-spec clip-ons developed by some of the world's fastest riders. Welcome to the Paddock Pass Podcast. Today we're going to preview the Malaysian Grand Prix and the first of the final hat-tricker races to finish off the MotoGP season. This episode of the Paddock Pass Podcast is presented by Renthal Street. So go to renthal.com where you can find over 900 street fitments for your bike. Neil Morrison said at the last race, he wants to go to Sepang with a tan, Adam. So he's sitting on a Thai beach. You're just back from your holiday as well. You were down in Greece. David, you're the only one of us that's actually been working for the last couple of weeks. (laughs) Uh, Well, yeah. I mean, I did have a day off on Sunday. Does that count? That was Junior GP, Dave. You should have been watching that just to see the the future stars. Adam, obviously you only had a a few days rest, but uh, you've probably earned them. We've had MX of Nations. You've had the end of the MXGP season, all the MotoGPs as well. So I'm not going to begrudge you a couple of days off. Yeah, cheers, Steve. Uh, I think it worked out to be nine weekends in a row. Um, so, But the the one free weekend, luckily, was on when my wife turned 50 years old. Uh, so we had a couple of nights in Athens, um, just to look around the Acropolis, which she'd never been to. Um, charming place, but uh, yeah, back on it. And I do love the irony of Neil going off onto a beach holiday because I've never known a, a single person to detest the sun so much. So I can only assume he was sitting under a palm tree waving at his uh, far better half while she was splashing in the ocean and actually enjoying the sunshine. Um, you've got more chance of, uh, I don't know, Juan Mir suddenly winning the, the world championship this year than Neil getting a tan. Yeah, I suspect that um, uh, um, Neil's better half was going out during the day and then Neil was going out during the, during the night when the, um, when the sun had gone down. Well, I have one thing to ask you, lads. Now that Neil isn't on the pod, we're looking forward to the Malaysian Grand Prix at Sepang. Is this the time where we just talk about nothing but Sepang 2015 <laughs> and uh, then Neil never gets to talk about it again? Oh, I can't imagine that we'll not talk about Sepang to 2015 for, um, well, at any point in the future. I suspect that um, it may come up. Well, let's kick it off straight away, guys, with the only big news really in MotoGP right now, the World Championship fight between Pekka Bagnaya and Jorge Martin. David, I thought it was quite interesting in the build-up to this. You actually did an article about how the championship would look if we didn't have the sprint races, if we only had the sprint races, if we had both. So, um motomatters.com everyone's able to read that but what was the big takeaway that you had from it the i suppose the obvious takeaway is that um basically martin is much better or, or is a bit better in the sprints and banya is a bit better in the long races um but there's really not a great deal to uh, to to choose between them i mean the, the what was interesting was to see that there was um basically a race a, a race difference between the two so um Martin is winning the uh, sprint championship by one sprint race and uh, Banyaya is winning the Grand Prix championship by one uh, Grand Prix by 25 points. So, I mean, that was that. There was some other stuff down down the bottom, but I mean, that was it was certainly interesting. But they're actually very closely matched and they're clearly much better than the rest. I think the... uh the prospects for this weekend are, are quite interesting. As we know, Jorge Martin was very competitive at Sepang last year. He crashed out. But, um, you know, when it comes to, you know, Pekka Bagnai's turnaround, I think that was one of the pivotal moments in the 2022 season for him. 
And, um, you know, I was kind of looking at some stats because there is this slight build-up between Enea Bastinini and Jorge Martin again, particularly over the Factory Ducati seat for 2024. You know, could there possibly be a change? I personally think it's very unlikely. But, you know, Martin has, what, 16 podiums now and just over 50 Premier Class Grand Prix um, and 13 pole positions. And I was looking over the notes from last year at Sepang and um, Martin had actually made a joke saying that if the championship had been given points for Saturdays, then he would have been far more competitive. As we know, he's <laughs> uh, he's improved things significantly this year and has very much you know been the man both on both days, in fact. But uh, I think the way that Martin looked with all his troubles last year in Sepang, coupled with the fact of the momentum and the form he currently has, then it's, it's going to be a pretty i think it's going to be quite a gripping grand prix on sunday just uh did you mention that there are about the likelihood of switching things up for ducati obviously if jorge martin wins the world championship the last thing ducati want is for the prima pramac brands to be all over the place instead of lenovo and all the other sponsors that ducati have but you don't think it's too likely that we'll see a change this is clearly and Martin has said as much, this is a Ducati problem, not a Jorge Martin problem. He's still got the bike he needs to win the championship. He's focused on that. He'll leave it up to his people to be able to figure out where he's going to be next year. But he doesn't seem overly stressed about it. Yeah, but it's one of those complicated situations again. I think you'll get a different answer from depending who you're talking to in Ducati. I mean, of course, you know, the fact that Desmo Sedici wins the world championship is the priority for most of them, I would imagine. Um, whether it's what color it is and what sponsors are on the fairing is perhaps not so significant. Of course, if you look at somebody like David Tardotze, who's, you know, a team manager of one specific setup, then, you know, it'd be great to have everything blood red and nice and uniform like it was last year. But uh, it, it's just a consequence of having eight bikes on the grid and the fact that, I mean, it could have been a black bike very easily. Well, you mentioned there about Tardazzi and David, it was interesting to see his reaction after the last race in Buriram, but Tardazzi is the Ducati team, whereas someone like Paolo Chiabadi is the Ducati factory. So Chiabadi has hired the right riders, maybe not into the right team for this season or this, that and the other, but you would have to think that even regardless of who wins the championship, Ducati need to really assess what they're doing for how they're placing these riders around their teams because there are like Adam said people just within the individual teams that have to get their results and at the end of the day if Pramac win the championship there's a lot of people in the Ducati factory team that don't get their championship bonus whereas there's a lot of people in the Ducati factory that will still get their bonuses. Yeah, I mean, for Ducati, I mean, I do like the split between Tardotti and uh, and Giabatti because Giabatti is Ducati Corse sporting director. So he's the head of Ducati Corse. He's the head of the racing department. Um, it, it shouldn't make a difference to him. I mean, like probably uh, if he was allowed to express a preference, he would prefer uh, Bagnaia to win just because it does stay within the factory scene. Um, uh, but I mean, like, I, I actually like Martin's approach to this because it is completely out of, con- of his control. He's got nothing to do uh, w- with it. Um, and you just know that even if um, if Martin does win, uh, and if uh, Martin, if Ducati do hold the the the, the Vroom event again, like we had this year for the first time in uh, more than a decade, um, I, I think that uh, Jorge Martin is going to be dragged along to be paraded out to uh, uh, show off what a magnificent brand uh, Ducati is. I think the Ducati. 
uh, I think Ducati are going to milk it for everything anyway. They're going to milk it for as much publicity as possible um, and then make a decision over the winter because they don't have to decide, you know, which, which, who's going to be in which team uh, until the start of the championship anyway. Yeah, he'll be in a red Ducati Corsa t-shirt whenever he's at all these events rather than his Pramac t-shirt. Exactly. But Adam, we, we had a couple of questions in. One of them, Martin Darlington, asking us about the rivalry that we see between Martin and Bagnaya. He quite likes the fact that it's a good-natured rivalry compared to some of the toxic rivalries we had in the past. Is that a just on the surface, that camaraderie, or is there actually that real relationship between them? And how do you see the, the rivalry between them? Uh, one thing I think we forget for most of the riders on the grid is that they've known each other since the early teens. I mean, they've been racing each other in foundation series, various cups. You know, they they know about each other. And I see this a lot, of course, in, in motocross as well. Uh, you know, so when you get to the, sort of the premier class where the spotlight is the brightest and there is a lot of attention on the actions and the words, little gestures, body language, everything associated with, you know, major, major coverage of a significant sport, then things do tend to get amplified. But I think Bagnaya and Martina are two people that know each other pretty well. And, you know, there's a lot of idiosyncrasies they recognize in each other. And that's just, just going to bubble up now and again. I'm, personally, Steve, my opinion is that I'm not someone who goes in for these um, intense rivalries. I, I've always wanted things to be authentic. You know, if you have two rivals that are racing at the best of friends, then you don't need to manufacture some aggro or something. That's why I always felt the, the, the kind of dispute between Jonathan Ray and Chaz Davies and Superbike from a distance. It just looked a little bit unnatural, you know, when it did flare up because they're two of the sort of nicest guys you'd want to meet. And it seemed a little disbelieving that they could get sort of quite, um, uh, like I said, aggro with each other. So it's, um, I, I don't think we're going to see any kind of big flare ups, uh, you know, again, Sepang 2015 it's all kind of um working up nicely isn't it to something possibly happening but you know it's just keep it authentic yeah just as long as Ducati released the data it'll be okay (laughs) (laughs) we also had a couple of other questions in about not so much related to Martina Bagnaia but I think it was an interesting one we got in on Patreon from David MacArthur one of our paddock insiders and David was asking about Juan Mir's season and putting it into context and has there ever been a worse injury-free season on a factory bike and the reason that I'm kind of bringing this in is for Jorge Martin if he moved to the factory team there's no guarantee that it would all go swimmingly just like we've seen for Bastianini this year as well so for Ducati it might well be the case of better the devil you know and that's Jorge Martin winning races on the Pramac bike. Uh, yeah, I mean, to go back to the Pramac bike, uh, the other thing, there was an interview with uh, Oriol Puigdemont, who had a, a couple of words with Albert Valera, who's Jorge Martin's manager. And Valera was saying, like, you know, we don't care about 24. We can't do anything about it. What we're interested in is 25, which makes much more sense. You actually get in and, and, and focus on that. Now, trying to put Jorge or Juan Mir's um, uh, season into contracts. Oh, obviously, he missed a lot of races. You know, he he was injured. He were, uh, had the crash in, I think, Mugello. Um, uh, he's had several crashes this year. Um, he he has got on absolutely terribly. I mean, like you would have to go back and think of maybe um, Marco Melandri at uh, Ducati in two thousand and eight. Um, where Melandri just had an absolutely miserable time, couldn't get on, uh, get on with the bike. 
the difference there is that in 2008, Casey Stoner was winning uh, races, whereas in, you know, like uh, now, the, the Honda is a bad bike. I mean, there is, there's no two ways about it. Yes, Alex Rins won a race in, um, uh, in Austin, a very strange track and under very strange circumstances where uh, Rins himself is um, exceptionally strong, unusually strong, and has always been strong. Um, but yeah, the, it, it, it's a completely different kettle of fish right now, I think. Yeah. I mean, Dave's on the money there for my, in my opinion, it's, um, I think if Mark Marquez was winning or picking up significant results, then you could really point a finger at Joan Mir and say, you know, what on earth has gone on there? How has he not adapted much to the Honda? But, you know, just looking at his championship scorecard, he missed those three rounds. And I think he's only taken points in three other Grand Prix. I mean, that's quite a significant amount from, you know, finishing the Thai Grand Prix and going into to Malaysia. Uh, I don't think we can judge him too harshly. Uh, he needs a little bit more time changing manufacturer and, you know, changing team. And with Honda, like Dave says, at their worst ebb. Yeah, I think that's all That's all fair to say. Just um, one other thing, just before we, we finish up and move on from it, um, the Martin being on that independent bike, the satellite bike compared to the factory bike and the pressures that come from that. We... We're able to have Peter McLaren on Paddock Notes for us last time out in Thailand. Pete did a big sit-down interview with Mark Marquez as well. And Mark actually talked about that as well, David, just about being free from the pressures of being the factory rider. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he, he was talking about, you know, it being a very different atmosphere, uh, you know, a, a much friendlier. And I mean, like, on the one hand, he isn't able to control and direct uh, development on the other hand, um, uh, you know, like he's got one job, which is to get on the bike and uh, go as fast as possible at all times. So it's it's a very different job. It's a very different kettle of fish. I'd love to see what Ducati come up with for Sepang next year because they kind of refined and, you know, really kind of chiseled the package for 2023. If they make some sort of major step that Bagnaia and Bastinini are going to have and Marquez doesn't, then that could really sort of uh, make a nice little twist in 2024, even before the season begins a proper. Uh, uh, Ducati right now, uh, their bike is fantastic. The bike is really good. They're they're reaching the point where um, the risk of changing, making a big change and making the bike worse is much bigger than, you know, making a big uh, big change and making it better. You know, like they will be, they're at the point where they're just refining and refining and refining and refining. And, you know, they're they're looking for hundredths everywhere. So I don't see that there's going to be a big, a, a big step. I think it's going to be much more like we are now with uh, the GP23 and GP22, which are, to be perfectly honest, when I look at them, I have to look very, very closely. I mean, like the way that I tell them apart, whether it's a GP23 or a GP22, it's just to look at the paint job. You know, you look at the number on it and then you know which team it is and which bike it is. That they look so similar that it's really difficult to tell them apart. Just to move on to this weekend's race then as well obviously Sepang was one of the toughest tracks of the year in terms of the heat the humidity the physical nature of it this is probably the last place that Aprilia want to go Adam given that they've had so many issues in the hot weather so it's unlikely we're going to see anyone really jump up and bring the fight to Ducati this weekend yeah Aprilia also had their I mean even down to basic details such as heat dispersion from you know the from the volume of temperature that the bike is producing and how it's affecting the riders. That's uh, something that we saw inflict um, quite a significant amount of woe on Maverick Vinales in particular. So they're, you know, Aprilia are 
when it comes to the flyaways again still showing their sort of status as not really like the new boys but still trying to play catch up to Ducati um I also I'll be keen to see how KTM get on and in particular also with Yamaha I mean Fabio Quartararo had a fantastic ride in Sepang last year to to delay the championship confirmation until Valencia um you know I think Quartararo had a very eventful Grand Prix in Malaysia last year I I believe he broke a finger in practice um which didn't improve things I know the weather was inconsistent but uh, again his quotes from last year he was saying it was one of the the few races he actually enjoyed um when he took that podium finish and one of the few podium finishes it has to be said uh, that we've we've um seen the Frenchman acquire in the last sort of year yeah, a couple of things to note as well for this weekend. Alvaro Bautista is going to be racing again in MotoGP, so he'll be on the Ducati Test Team bike. And Alex Rins won't be racing, so Iker Lacoon is going to race. And David, it's one of those things where, once again, we get that reminder that uh, it's just been an injury-packed season for so many riders, with Rins missing another two races, hopefully back for the final round of the year in Valencia. Yeah, I, I have doubts that Rins will be back for Valencia because of... Just the severity of the injury, you know, the the the, uh, the the bones are taking a long time to heal. It it should be fixed already, you know. It it should uh, the 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 bones should be back together and no problem. But but the fact that it isn't, I think, is has to be a, a serious concern. Um, yeah, I mean, there there have been a lot of injuries, and uh, I mean, there is. Uh, do we blame it on the sprint race? I think you can't blame it directly on the sprint race, but certainly indirectly on the sprint race because of the uh, just the massive amount of pressure. I think there's lots and lots of different factors which are all playing into this uh, issue where when everything is so much closer, it encourages people to actually take more risks. And I think that the, 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 there's a whole bunch of factors which are all building together to make um yeah to, to make this a much more dangerous and difficult sport steve what do you reckon bautista is going to do this weekend and also do you think is he going to turn up in that ridiculous gold outfit and um, <laughs> i mean i didn't i didn't catch it on your superbike pod so apologies but i hope that you know it attracted the derision it deserved uh, in the superbike paddock when he put it on I took the piss enough on the live broadcast, to be <laughs> honest, because it was just ridiculous. The problem with it was they did the same thing last year, and it looked crap last year, and it looked crap this year. It was, yeah, it was too much. But also, I just don't like celebrations that involve getting changed into leathers, because it takes so long, and it's totally unnecessary. Just give them a vest, give them a flag. If you've got something big... Do it, but do it quick. You know, I, I remember like when, when Johnny Ray won his fourth championship and they had the four of a kind championship celebration playing poker. And it was pretty cool because it was all set up. He just came up, rolled off his bike and sat down to play poker, you know, and was pretty quick and easy. This one with Bautista, same as last year, just took forever. And, you know, this and fairing changes. I, I'm just not a fan, to be honest. Um, For this weekend, though, for Alvaro, he's had a lot of time testing the bike. And he missed out on another day at Hareth last week as well. The plan was that he was going to do a day's testing on the GP bike to get ready for it. But speaking to him before Hareth, he was saying that, you know what? You go into a MotoGP mode, you go into a Superbike mode, it's pretty easy to switch between them. If you're going to ride the Ducati MotoGP bike at only one track, Sepang's not a bad one for it as well. They know it inside out. He He's always gone well at Sepang and it's got all the power in the world. So for Alvaro... He'll be, he'll be, he'll be looking for a top ten, and he could well do it just because the bike's going to be that strong. But also, 
MotoGP being how MotoGP is, if you end up with bad weather in free practice on Friday, suddenly he's really on the back foot. And then it's just a case of scrambling around for a point. One of the other issues last year was the the riders are quite critical of some bumps in turn eight. I don't know if that's been rectified for this Grand Prix. Uh, also, Dave, I know you're you're pretty good at looking at the weather forecast. I haven't glanced at it yet, so I don't know what kind of conditions they're, they're going to face in Sepang. Uh, uh, it's a bit tricky at the moment because apparently there's some, uh, as of today, there are flood warnings for uh, for the area. Um, it looks like there's going to be like really, really heavy downfalls, but mostly in the evenings, which means you're going to end up with, uh, you know, a damp track. It can't, that track can take a little while to, to, to dry out. Um, uh, so yeah, it, it's going to be. Uh, it's not going to be ideal, you know. It's not going to be. It, it never is at Sepang, of course, because because it is in the tropics. Um, I think the racing again is all uh, set up for three o'clock, which is um, uh, shortly before the rain start. The rains usually start between sort of like between four and five, sometimes a little bit earlier. Um, so there are going to be issues with uh, w- with the weather. Um, it doesn't look like it's going to be a, like a proper washout. Um, but it does look like there are going to, you know, like the, 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 there are going to be, the track is going to be wet and it's going to be a factor. Yeah, Sepang's always an interesting one in the wet because it's probably actually the best grip that we get from a wet track as well. So if we do end up with a wet race, it will be interesting to see who's willing to push right from the get-go. Usually it's Sepang in the, in the rain. It's just whoever goes as fast as possible in the first couple of laps to build up a big advantage. Yeah, I think John McPhee would testify to the amount of grip in the rain. I mean, that that move was um, quite memorable last year uh, for for a significant result in Moto3. Um, Mandalika as well has got a decent shout for for grip in the rain. I mean, the lean angles the guys were getting in there last year was was fantastic. I'm um, just going back to Ducati and Bagnaya. I mean, I was I was in Malaysia last year. I'm I'm not going this year purely because we have Qatar and Valencia back to back. So I'll be at those two. But um, working at the circuit last year. The tension and the pressure around Ducati and Bagnai, it was tangible. I mean, it sort of just followed him around like a cloud the whole weekend. And it was incredibly impressive to watch him go through that sort of 72-hour period. He had a pretty miserable Friday. He qualified ninth on the grid. Uh, Quattararo was looking competitive until, as we mentioned, his crash. Um, so it really was like a, the, the definition of a pressure cooker. And then when we came to Valencia and Bagnaia had a 23-point lead going into the final round, I mean, it was pretty much a formality. But then, you know, you discover things like most of Bagnaia's wins that year had been achieved and, you know, with less than 0.6 of a second margin. And, you know, he, he's just a master at dealing with those, those situations where you need consistency. I mean, he's made mistakes, as we've seen, but I think that's what will make the difference here, I mean, Martin is spectacular and he could romp away with this Grand Prix and do another triple, in fact, across the weekend. But I just think there's something about Bagnaia's ability to produce the goods and to, to hold off everything else, all the other distractions and, and, and bring it home. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Dad, that he's also had to deal with the pressure before of these final three rounds of a year, knows what to expect in a MotoGP championship setting to try and get across the line. Obviously, Martin, he won his... Moto 3 World Championship at Sepang, but it's a very different thing in Moto 3 compared to Moto GP, so that's going to be interesting. Just, we got a couple of questions in as well. Dave, we got a question from Space Chilton just asking about Brad Binder. So Binder's challenging for the podiums almost every race now. 
could he inadvertently be the man that decides the world championship this year? I, absolutely, I definitely think so. I mean, yeah, Brad is having a really, really strong sort of last part of the championship. It really f- seems like, uh, especially this um, uh, th- this carbon frame is giving a little bit of the, you know the bit of uh, rear grip that they were missing. Um, I think also Sepang is going to be a track which is going to suit the KTM quite well. Uh, so yeah, I, th- I think I-, I think he is going to be a proper factor. Um, you know, it would be even be it'd be even more fun if he ends up deciding it at uh, Valencia. That would be um, absolutely spectacular. But um, uh, we'll see. I mean, you know, and the other thing is, you also know about Brid- Brad Binder is he just really doesn't care. <laughs> what uh, Jorge Martín and Pekka Bajaya are at. Um, he has no interest in the championship whatsoever. And he's, he's you know, like he's going to stick it up the inside of someone. If there's a gap, he's going to go for it. Um, and doesn't really matter what anyone else is going to think about it. Uh, so, yeah, maybe we'll get a little bit of... Um, we were talking about, you know, the need for the need for rivalry. Maybe we'll see a little bit of a strop from uh, one or the other of uh, Martin and Banyaya if um, they uh, get a KTM-shaped fairing shoved up the inside of them. Yeah, I agree with Dave there. I think KTM have been outperforming this year, especially compared to previous results. And let's not forget in these last Grand Prix, I mean, Binder finished on the podium in the opening race in Qatar last year. That was on the oldest, um, the older version of the frame they currently had at that time. Then moving to the final round in Valencia last year as well, they brought an updated uh, version of that chassis. And uh, Binder, you know, finished on the podium again. Now they have this carbon version. So, I mean, there's three races there or three moments when KTM really accelerated their development. And I think Binder is going to be competitive both in Spain, in Qatar, and, uh, you know, very well. It's very possible as well this weekend. The other thing about... The other thing about Sepang is that the, the track has got quite a lot of grip, um, and that is going to favour the uh, the Hondas. It's going to help the Hondas. It's going to help the Yamahas. Um, so, and I think especially the Honda. I think I think we are again, again going to see Mark Marquez up the sharp end in the um, uh, especially in the sprint race you know I d- again he's just going to burn the tires for the full length he's not going to get there but I think he's going to be um, he's going to be a, a pain in the arse in the sprint race for somebody I don't think there's much on the line for Binder I mean is he sort of 70 odd points behind Bezeki in the championship I don't think he can push into the top three uh, which is also you know the the first significant position of the bonus bracket for riders uh, but then Red Bull KTM are still very much in the fight for the team's championship. I mean, that's something I think they would like to try and bag. Um, Bastianini's form means that sort of the Lenovo Ducati team are not sort of running away with that one. Um, Pramac are quite strong, but uh, it's still quite close, that dispute. So there's there's kind of a little bit of kind of context there. Just, uh, Adam, as well, just about KTM, we had a question in from Rob as well, asking what Jack Miller needs to do to get himself a bit closer to the sharp end. And Rob's asking about the fact that Binder's been so impressive on the bike. Danny Pedrosa's jumped on and been fast. This shows that it's not just one style in the KTM, but what does does, uh, Jack Miller have to do to find his step? I, I think that's the question Jack's been fielding for the last third of the season um certainly since the second half i mean he managed to sort out the ducati at the barcelona test last year and then pushed all the way up into championship contention if he hadn't been punted out of the australian grand prix then he could have also been a a factor in the mix at sepang 2022 
it's um it's pretty difficult to put a finger on it steve i think there's some kind of electronic setting potentially there that's just stopping miller lasting the whole the, the whole way through a grand prix at the kind of lap times he wants to run i mean we were saying on the podcast pre-season that miller would need a good half a season at least before we thought he'd be competitive and he was competitive straight away in portugal but then he kind of quickly reached a ceiling of that um, I think KTM will have questions themselves about whether Jack is able with his crew to make that next step up. It's something really to keep an eye on in the preseason test next year and in the first three Grand Prix because I think uh, Pedro Acosta, who we can talk about in a moment, who's on the verge of becoming the first world champion uh, this season, uh, is 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 going to be red next year, but then it should only be a temporary thing because you'd imagine that KTM will lock him back into orange as soon as possible. Yeah, you mentioned about Pedro Acosta, so let's jump straight into the Moto2 class as well. Acosta, he should be confirmed world champion this weekend. Over the course of the season so far, David, he's been just remarkably consistent. I think it's only been three races where Tony Arbolino, who's second in the championship, has actually outscored Acosta. So going into this weekend, Acosta just needs to get it across the line. Comfortable margin, needs to be 50 points clear at the end of this weekend, should be able to do that. Yeah, I mean, yes, yeah. I mean, he's just clearly been the best Moto Two rider this year. Uh, he's been the most consistent, um, and also, you know, when he's had bad days, it's been on the days when it hasn't really mattered. You know, when when it hasn't been there hasn't really been one rider collecting all of the points uh, against him. So he, he's also not faced the kind of consistent competition, which is going to be interesting to see because. I think everyone feels that he's a bit special, that there is, that there is something special there. But the question is, you know, how's that going to translate into MotoGP? That is, I, I, like, I genuinely think he's a special rider, but I also have no idea what I'm basing that on. Do you know what I mean? I don't feel like that there is a, there's been a really clear benchmark. There hasn't been a really, I, I think sometimes you find it more clearly when there's a really hard fought championship. I think you're right there, Dave. I mean, you can only go on your visual cues. And, you know, he was able to handle a Moto3 bike better than anybody else. And his progression, his rate of learning is kind of unparalleled, again, in comparison to anybody else. In fact, you do have to draw a parallel with Mark Marquez. I mean, both riders will be 19 when they go into the premier class. I think Acosta is two months younger than Mark, um, you know, when, when sort of going in. But the, the difference is there is that Marquez went in as a Repsol Honda rider when it was a, quite a decent time to do so. Um, Acosta will be riding for, you know, Gas Gas Factory Racing Tech 3 that have something of a checkered past, we could say, with rookies. Even though Augusto Fernandez has shown with the right kind of approach and mentality this year, you can you know, make a niche for yourself. And, you know, the whole build-up between Paul Espargaro and Augusto was eventually decided in favour of the uh, the reigning Moto2 world champion, it has to be said. But, yeah, I mean, Acosta has the weight of statistics behind him, guys, as well. I mean, we said that, I said earlier on that Martin had done just over 50 Grand Prix in the Premier class. Well, Acosta's only just done just over 50 Grand Prix full stop. I mean, he's got pretty much two titles in that period and um, he's finished 50 percent of all of his grand prix on the podium 16 wins uh you know if you, if you count his red bull rookies domination as well and that's three titles sort of in four years uh, i i think it's just about how much time he's given to develop and how he can be allowed how how he's educated in MotoGP, gp how he doesn't get too disillusioned when perhaps he finds himself 
um, eight tenths of a second off and, and fighting for 18th position. I mean, that's that's going to be the biggest challenge for him, I think, next year. Yeah, I mean, it's also worth remembering that, that when he jumped off a Moto 3 bike and straight onto a Moto 2 bike, he was far straight away. Um, I think he left the Portimao Moto 2 test at the beginning of 2021. Uh, no, 22, sorry. Um, uh, at the beginning of 2022, he was easily fastest, comfortably fastest. We all thought he was going to be special. There were very experienced people inside the paddock telling me that they were expecting him to be champion that year, um, even though there hadn't been a single race there. And it did work out, you know, like things don't always uh, work out and, and racing is different. So it's clear that he can adapt quickly. Um, but yes, it's actually like pushing through that, that when, once you face difficulties, that's that's when riders really learn and prove themselves. Yeah, I have to say, for me, working in, in the Junior GP paddock or CEV as it was when Acosta was coming through, he was very impressive, but he wasn't the only impressive rider coming through at that stage. Izan Guevara was actually the champion in Junior GP that year. Um, he genuinely was super impressive. Came from the back of the grid to win in Aragon and different things. But Acosta was always there or thereabouts. I remember that year, I think he pretty much finished on the podium every race he finished. Finished third in the championship. In rookies then as well, he went through and dominated that season. But Acosta's that one rider that's been able to show he can make that progression. Moto3 Moto is an interesting one because riders spent so long on Moto3 bikes racing in Junior GP, then the World Championship, that they struggled to adapt to then learn how to ride something else. Acosta just jumped onto a Moto2 bike, was instantly able to do that. Uh, whenever he was riding a Moto3, he was training on a superbike. So he was trying to get himself ready for whatever he could. And I think that's probably been what set him apart. And when you look at what he's been able to achieve, the rider I'd compare him to, because obviously Mark is, what, 15 years ago now at this stage, the rider to compare him to is actually Jorge Martin, because Martin came through, obviously at the start of his career, was on the Mahindra and different things. But coming through the Spanish Championship, he was very similar to Acosta and then it took him time in the Grand Prix classes really to be able to find that right environment to be able to show what he can do but you know Pedro Acosta the reason that you think he's special Dave is because he is special but I think you know people are gonna have praised his mentality um, his maturity his intelligence but you have to remember that in 2024 everything is going to be turned around for Pedro because he barely makes mistakes um, you know, he's been so used to success and everything is going to have to be reset for him. You know, he's going to make mistakes. He's going to ride Michelin tires for the first time. Um, you know, he's going to have a wealth of technical options that you know, is probably going to fry his brain for the first half of the season. Uh, there's all sorts of um, question marks against what he knows and what he's capable of. I mean, if he takes some fantastic results, I mean, Mark won his second Grand Prix in MotoGP. And, you know, if, if Pedro does something like that, then I think we could all start saying, okay, the, the, the Messiah is, uh, you know, he's not a naughty boy. He's actually arrived. And, um, you know, it's uh, until then, I, I just think we need to give him enough time. I mean, 19 years old is no age. I think you also have to remember as well, 2013 was a very different MotoGP to go into than what you have now, especially when you went in as the factory Repsol Honda rider. Yeah, I mean that bike was absolutely fantastic uh, at that point in time. So they're, they're, you know, they're, there's just no sort of argument. Uh, question: Should KTM have put Acosta into the factory team? I think yes, but obviously they couldn't. Uh, I mean, how much there was in 
contract wiggle room to move Jack across to Gas Gas. That's what we will never really know. But uh, I think you could have really planted Acosta there and had him there for the next five years, you know, if you wrapped him up in a nice secure contract. But in this way, they've at least got him on the MotoGP grid. Um, they've placated the thirst that he had to have, you know, that he had for one of those births in 2024. And, you know, I, I'm sure that Priori One in Austria is trying to get Acosta tied up to a nice long-term contract and to get him back in orange for 25. I mean, anything is possible with sufficient money, Adam. I mean, you know, <laughs> we, we, we've, we've seen this. It's just a question of how much you want it. And, you know, KTM and Red Bull have uh, deep enough pockets. I think for me that the most telling thing is they lost Jorge Martin years ago they didn't want to run the risk now it took a long time for them to confirm what was going to happen with pedro so clearly they had to talk pedro into this but you'd imagine that just means 2025 you're going to be on the orange bike and a little bit like what i said whenever the news came out that they were choosing him over paul there isn't a bad decision as long as you've got a costa on your bike and you've potentially got that generational talent because there aren't that many guys that come through that do what he's done and show the racecraft from such an early stage that's always been the impressive thing but yeah he's not going to jump onto the bike and win in Qatar or anything like that but you know you can't really rule out anything with Pedro as well that's why I think Tectoire and that seat there is a perfect sort of little mini launch pad uh, there's going to be no pressure on him whatsoever uh, after the escapades with Danilo Petrucci and also Remy Gardner and Ralph Fernandez, you know, you'd be looking at that bike thinking, well, is that really the right step for me? But then the RC16, whether it's red or orange, has progressed a lot, as we've seen. And, uh, you know, Acosta, I, they're not going to be throwing the latest bits at him, you know, in the first six months of his MotoGP uh, apprenticeship. But then, you know, Steve, I think he has a slightly softer position there than he would, say, next to Brad Binder, who could in theory, be vying for the World Championship next year. Yeah, it's always one of those situations where it's about the right environment for you to come into, where the pressure is going to be, and then the teammate you have. And Pedro's not going to fear being Augusto Fernandez's teammate. They've already done it last year as well. So he'll know what to expect in that regard. But uh, David, it's just interesting that we had a question in from Julian just about the logjam of riders coming through from Moto2 and 3 into MotoGP. It's only going to be Acosta next year. You look at the championship and Arbelino, Dixon, uh, Aaron Canna, Chantra, they're all going to stay. Potentially, we might have it where Fermin Aldeguer moves up to the Repsol Honda seat. That's something that's been rumoured a little bit. But when you look at that logjam, teams want to have the experienced riders. And the reason for that has to be MotoGP is just so complicated now. You can't really afford to take a big risk. No, I mean, you have to be certain of the caliber of rider that you're, that you're getting. That doesn't necessarily mean you have to have spent a long time on a Moto2 bike. And I think also um, the risk of spending too long on a Moto3 bike is much bigger than the risk of spending too long on a Moto2 bike. I think the step between Moto2 and, Moto3 and MotoGP is still much smaller than between Moto3 and Moto2. Um, just because the riding is so completely different, all of a sudden you've got... You you know, like horsepower to spare. Um, there are you know, you're cutting power to get out of corners. You having to you having to lift, pick the bike up, and and treat it differently. Now, um, yeah, it's interesting looking at that sort of logjam of riders because I'm not sure that there are. There's not a lot of names that are absolutely sort of nailed on Moto uh, Moto GP. 
uh, uh, sort of you know candidates. It's uh, would you put Arbolino in MotoGP? Yeah, sure, maybe if 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 there's a vacancy, you know, same with Jake Dixon. Would you put him in GP? Yeah, sure. You know, if 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 something opens up, if someone retires, um, but Jake Dixon, Tony Arbolino. I mean, like I think Fer- Fermin Aldeguer is the one uh, question mark because he has. So little experience, so little time on the bike, and he has done some really quite remarkable things. I think again, winning on the speed up is always a good um, uh, a, a good sign. Last rider to win on the speed up um, ended up being world champion in twenty twenty one. So uh, it, yeah, it, it it's going to be it's going to be interesting to see who comes through from that group. Is there really a log jam though? I wouldn't say there's many riders on the grid currently where you think, well, they're occupying a space that they don't really deserve. I mean, Franco Morbidelli is moving to Ducati. I'm, I'm quite excited about that. I think, you know, he's a, he's a quality rider, obviously been stunted by the, the slow progression of development with the Yamaha, even though he managed to take fantastic results on the bike when it was, you know, two and a half years old uh, at the contemporary time. I, I just wonder, you know, why would you want to take somebody like Firmino de Guerre or Abelino over some of the current riders with a lot of experience in MotoGP class presently? I, I think the the question is um, about upside and potential. You know, what you're looking for in a rider is potential. You know, how much room do they have to grow and to improve? Um, the thing about riders in already in MotoGP is you've pretty much, and we've talked about this at length with uh, with Joan Zarco. You, we know what Zarco is capable of um, on a uh, on a very good day when all the stars align uh, and Jorge Martin wrecks his tyres, then. John Zarco can win a race, um, but otherwise, you know, he's occasionally regu- he's an occasional podium regular. What's interesting to me is like in MotoGP. I mean, like uh, we've chatted to the to Steve about this sometimes about c- comparisons with the NFL, where there's a bunch of players who are called what they call just a guy. Um, you know, they, they're basically just like a warm body holding place and they're very competent they're very good at their job but they're not exceptional um i think there's a a few riders in MotoGP like that but the level of the just a guy riders if you like has become so very high um that it does leave doesn't leave much uh, much room because even the riders who are sort of just a guy you know the the space people like joanne zarko um you know zarko's not going to be champion he is going to be a very, very fast, very competent, podium-capable rider. Um, you know, look, look at Bezeki and uh, uh, Marini. And, uh, I mean, yeah, who is currently... We thought the same thing about Fabio Di Giannantonio. He was just a guy. And then all of a sudden, you know, he's he's on the podium uh, and being talked about as being the replacement of the Repsol Honda. There's, the level, that just the, the general level is so high that it's difficult to say, okay, do we replace this guy with this guy well that's actually what i find interesting about aldeguer to be honest because he's spent three years now on model three machinery and the reason for that is whenever he was in the european talent cup he was a podium rider he was very fast very impressive but he had no money and he had to start off on a stock 600 yamaha and then just hope that he found something to be a moto two rider in cev he managed to jump onto the boscoscuro bike he was partnered up with alonso lopez everyone knew what lopez could do but Aldeguer just smoked him and we were able to see that he was the real deal as well. And he's got three years Moto2 experience where he's always been fast. I'd like to see him get a chance because, Dave, you mentioned there about the, the Jags, just a guy. And 
there's a lot of riders on the MotoGP field that if they went to World Superbikes, I'd be super excited to have them in World Superbikes. But they're P10 to P20 in MotoGP. They're not the guys that move the needle. And for someone like Aldeguer, he's also a rider that probably wants to be on a MotoGP bike. A rider willing to be on a Honda. There's not many of them. Well, the situation with, uh, you know, Augusto Fernandez is similar, Steve. I mean, he's, what, going to be 27, 26 next year? I mean, for a rider in his mid-20s creeping towards the late to be having his first year in MotoGP is, I mean, just look at Acosta as the most extreme stark contrast. I mean, 19 years old. Uh, that's that's quite, you know, if we're going to be ageist or look at the rider's spans, I was preferred sort of grand prix winners and championship contenders to be kind of in their late 20s early 30s because i think they just bring that amount of experience and um i don't know knowledge and and like kind of peak performance skills of the job uh you know rather than it being you know a, f- a phenomenon talent on you know the right bike at the right time there's a whole uh collective effort working up to the achievement of something that was always something i found more appealing but you know fernandez is yes all right granddad <laughs> it it is appealing that ad but there's also a reason why riders get their opportunities i always say this about bautista in world superbikes there's a reason that he gets performances out of the ducati that the other riders can't he's a better rider than them <laughs> he was the guy when he was 14 was a factory aprilia rider he was the guy coming through the spanish championship into moto 3 uh, well into 125s as it was 250s moto gp he was a factory guy all the way through whereas Rinaldi was a stock 600 rider. Petrucci was a stock rider. Bassani was only only racing in the European Supersport races. There's riders that are just better than other riders. And then there's also where the opportunity comes into it. For Augusto, he had no money. He was racing European Junior Cup when he was 16. He was a really impressive rider in it. But he was racing European Junior Cup. It was not a high level compared to coming through CEV Moto3 as it would have been at that stage. He went on and did you know, two years, I think, or one year in stock 600 and then went to CEV Moto2, got an opportunity in Moto2 and was able to work his way up through the ranks. But he had to do that when he was 20 rather than when he was 15. And that's what ends up costing him in terms of his age now when he's a MotoGP rider. I think think Augusto is a really good rider. Is he a rider that's ever going to be able to fulfill what he could do on a MotoGP bike? Probably not because on a KTM or a Gas Gas... He's got Brad Binder there as his comparison. Binder's got all that experience, came up through as a Mahindra rider and then on to better bikes. Whenever Binder's had to perform, like his his Moto3 championship season, it was boom or bust. He needed to win that championship or his career was over. He delivered and that's why he's been able to keep those good rides all the way through. Sometimes when when you're older getting your start... It hurts you, and it definitely hurts you in the Grand Prix paddock a lot more than it hurts you in the Superbike paddock. Well, that's why I think on the gas gas, it's going to be an interesting study next year because you're going to have Fernandez in his second year where I think there will be a lot more people looking at him and listening to what he says, thinking, well, is this a guy that can deliver results or can that professionalism also help us develop this motorcycle? At the moment, I think he's got a pass and he's shown enough clearly to KTM you know, senior management to get another year over, say, the likes of Paulo Spargaro and all the experience that he brings. Uh, but then when it's contrasted against Acosta, Steve, and, and what he might be able to, you know, uh, deliver out of the bag, it's it's going to be cool to see. But developing that bike, you've got Danny Pedrosa, you're going to have Paul. A lot of the onus is going to fall on them as the test program ramps up and Paul gets all of his wild cards and different appearances. So for Augusto, 
you know, he can take the Peko Bagnaya line of I'm a racer, I'm not a test rider. Get the other lads to do the donkey work and just get me the bike as I need it. Yeah, that's true. But I think uh, Fernandez has made himself as pliable as possible in his first season. I think he's really uh, come into it with the, as we've been saying all the way through, the right attitude to get another attempt at it. And that's why I have some sympathy for Digia because, okay, he's into his second season. And, you know, riders, of course, as we've been saying on this show, they develop at different times. So it's, uh, it's an expensive decision. I mean, it's a 10 to 15 million euro call every year, uh, you know, whether a manufacturer wants to put a particular rider and a particular project into motion. I, I just think, you know, you have to be very brave to pull the trigger on a rider very quickly. Yeah, I would say for Digia, he's at least shown in the last few rounds that he has that ability, has that progress. He was a guy that in his junior career was always pretty fast you know may not have always gotten the results that he would have wanted but he was always fast and that's where that speed gets you extra opportunities you look at Raul Fernandez and Moto3 and Moto2 he was always so impressive MotoGP hasn't worked out but you also know that he's going to keep getting opportunities and that comes about because in the opposite of Fernandez of Augusto Fernandez Raul was young he was a hot shot talent coming through and that does give you an awful lot of leeway. And that's one of the things that, unfortunately, will never really change in racing. Dave, just to finish off, you had uh, an interview with uh, Corrado Ciaccanelli, the director of technology for Dorna, just to talk about the future direction of the sport. Uh, uh, yes, I mean, it was fascinating to me because um, obviously we have MotoGP rules packages last for five years. Uh, we're only just, I think, on the second year of the current um, uh, the current rules package. Uh, it runs out in 26, 2027, we get uh, completely new rules. Obviously, there's uh, rules with um, uh, fuel. We're going to 40% uh, sustainable fuels next year and then 27 uh, we go to 100% sustainable fuels. Um, but the, the the really big changes, you know, getting rid of radar devices, uh, reducing aerodynamics, all the rest of it are going to uh, only going to be possible from 2027. And we're right at the start of the negotiating process. Um, next year, especially 2024, I think it's going to be crucial in defining how the you know what MotoGP looks like that's going to be when there's going to be a lot of back and forth between um the, the between Dorna and the the MSMA the manufacturers um Cecchinelli told me that he had spoken to uh, or he's put forward his proposals this is what we want. Um, those proposals include things like, you know, like getting rid of ride height devices, severely reducing aerodynamics, because it's impossible to ban aerodynamics because any object moving through the air has an aerodynamic effect. Um, and so what they're doing and talking about is severely restricting basically the size of the wings and the shape of the wings and the amount of, uh, and the amount of, uh, sort of surface area. Um, and there's also talk about a change to the engine spec. Now, I think the factories are looking at um, 850cc. That was what they would like to see. Um, but if there is a reduction in engine spec, the one thing that uh, MotoGP wants to do is ensure that we don't end up with these really high-powered, very high-revving bikes. So they want to make sure that the uh, that the stroke stays the same and they just reduce the bore. 
Um, uh, if they cut the bore to something like 75 millimeters, you end up almost automatically around 850 cc. Um, they don't have to change the engines that much, but you would get an engine which has a little bit of a broader power uh, power band, a little bit more of a uh, wider power spread. Um, it would last a little bit longer. Um, so that's that's the direction that we are looking at at the moment, but it's still everything is open and open to be agreed. Two things. I think it's important that fans shouldn't think, oh, you know, MotoGP is not going to change until 2027. I mean, next year there's going to be three one-day tests uh, during the season in preparation for the new Michelin front tyre, which will be coming in 2025. I mean, that arguably could have a bit of a shake-up on, you know, how we see the action developing on the track. The second thing is, Dave, I mean, could they not tweak the technical regs based, like, on safety? I mean, could they not yank away devices if it impacts that particular sort of facet of the championship? Yeah, yes, they can. Uh, I mean, the, the only basically the uh, MSMA, the factories, if they are as long as they are unanimous, um, uh, can control any changes to the technical rules in the intervening five year period. Um, except if Dorna say something is about safety. But the thing is, these these things have been on the bikes for a very, very long time. You know, like, like ride height devices, you can't take them off because they've been on for such, such a long time. Um, the, the, you would end up in a very sort of, in a very strong sort of argument between the two. And also, Ducati want really want to keep the devices. The other factories are much less excited about the devices. Certainly, I don't think KTM are particularly interested in them. I don't think Aprilia and certainly the Japanese factories are not particularly interested in them. Um, but Ducati are very, very uh, sort of wedded to their devices because I think the the ride high device is very important for the way that the the, the Ducati functions. Um, I, I think that they, there's a possibility that they do restrict. The functioning of, of ride height devices some uh, some way. I mean, it would be fairly easy to introduce a, uh, for example, a stroke limit. So you know, the bike rear of the bike uh, drops, but it's only allowed to drop by X amount um, uh, uh, to, to restrict the effect and to stop it from from happening so much. But even then, they're not going to disappear until twenty twenty seven. But as you say, rightly, the new front mission, and I think it's going to have an impact. I do have to say though, it's one of those things where you also need to protect the sport from the manufacturers. And this is something that's going to be a bigger talking point over the next few years. Well, obviously for the future world superbike regulations, we've done that by restricting the the fuel flow is how we're going to do it in 2025 onwards. So there are things that need to be done to make sure that you don't lose the product that's the most important thing, the TV product and the entertainment that you get from it. Yeah, of course, you also have to remember the the, the massive, massive difference between World Superbikes and MotoGP is that MotoGP is a prototype series and manufacturers are able to build a completely new bike every year. Whereas World Superbikes, these are production bikes that, you know, the punters are supposed to be able to buy. You're supposed to be able to walk into a dealership and buy something which um, at one point vaguely resembled the bike that the that Alvaro Bautista rode. Um, so the, 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 it, the manufacturers in World Superbikes are much less able to change their bikes, which is why you end up going with something like fuel flow is something which it, that they have much more power and control over changing. 
Yeah, and uh, someday, Dave, I'll manage to see a BMW M1000 or <laughs> on the street. But uh, until that day, I'll have to settle for it in World SBK. I've got something to say, Steve. Um, Neil is not on the call, but I was looking up and Sepang International Circuit, I think they've been, it's now something like 25 years uh, since they first held a GP. The first one was in 99. I don't think they're quite at the quarter century yet, uh, obviously. Um, and the, the, the pandemic, of course, cut down the number of Grand Prix that they had. But uh, I just wondered if either of you knew the winners of the uh, the the 125, 250, or 500cc GPs in 99 in, in Sepang International Circuit. Kenny Jr. won the won the 500. Oh, very good. Okay, that was, that was the easy one. But that was the, it's actually the first round of the championship that year. Was it Nobu Ueda in 125s? Right nationality. Maceo Azuma. Azuma? Yeah. I, I'll go well in the limb and say it was Rossi. Kappa Rossi. Kappa Rossi. Ah, there you go. There you go, Adam. That was, uh, he was still rocking the number one plate that year then, wasn't he? After the Argentina 98 <laughs> <Yeah>. situation. <laughs> Neil's probably listening to this thinking, oh, how could he take so long? to get them right but there we go oh, i got the big one i got the big one right straight away it was all in the middle of the night for god's sake i wasn't getting up to watch one two five then <laughs> i was worse than worse than dave for moto three practice in, <laughs> in these re- weekends uh yeah no uh i'm i'm going to be honest i'm not going to be up for moto three practice this week <laughs> well Neil will and he'll be our man on the ground as well as usual at Sepang and to get all of our insight through the course of the weekend check out our Patreon patreon.com forward slash paddock pass podcast where the paddock notes show at the end of each day from the rider debriefs we go straight into record a show and we're able to get everyone bang up to date with it we'll have that available on Thursday as well on all your normal podcast platforms and uh, check that out just to be able to get an insight into what we offer to our paddock insiders on patreon we've got a few new patrons this week including dean morby and uh, liam 48 so they've both signed up and uh, you can avail of a free trial to be able to understand what you get and then if you like what you hear then sign up to become a paddock insider wait steve uh, who's who's gonna win jorge martin's gonna win jorge martin for you i'm gonna say bagnaya uh, i'm gonna say martin i think martin has just got much he's just there's something about Jorge Martin, and I think Martin is going to be champion. Oh, wow. Okay, I'm going to change to Paco Bagnaya. Uh, that's <laughs> just inevitable. Just out of curiosity, for the MotoGP fantasy as well, check out the Paddock Pass Podcast League and sign up for no, that at any stage. Don't. We've got uh, quite, a lot of, quite a lot of interest in it this year, but Adam, you haven't been too interesting in... Uh, the fantasy league this year what's, what's uh, going on i don't know steve i mean one race i'd forgotten to do it i think it was india and then i looked afterwards and i still had danny pedrosa in the lineup um so at that point i thought oh this is just a waste of time so um yes uh, a bit of a shameful representation this season I, I don't even know where i am i'm sure you guys are higher than me and if dave is above you're me, then absolutely I really should... nowhere is where you right, are okay yeah that'll be my team name next year <laughs> dave You've obviously had uh, much more interest in it than Adam in recent weeks, but uh, it's still been a, a shameful performance by you as well. Yeah, I completely messed it up in the first half of the uh, season, but I've been doing, um, I've, I've had a strong uh, comeback, so that's not so bad. I mean, I've got uh, Jorge Martino on my team, I've got Brad Binder, and I've got Fabio Di Antonio for the moment. So um, uh, even if I don't change anything, I'm uh, looking looking pretty good. And uh, again, I actually sort of like figured out the secret to it. The secret is to to um, have people in your team um, and if they are successful then sell them a few weeks later because their price has gone up and there's uh, and there's sort of more on offer 
Um, well, that is an interesting theory. Adam, you have got uh, an outside chance of still making it into the top 400 oh. in the uh, Paddock Pass <laughs> podcast league. And uh, Neil, Neil's, the, Neil's the rider to watch. He's a few points behind me, but he's got his turbos left. So I'm, I'm a worried man to see if I can hold on to a top 20 spot against him. But uh, it's been one of those ones that in the recent weeks, me and Neil have actually spent more time texting each other about MotoGP fantasy than pretty much <laughs> anything else. And uh, we've gotten ourselves needlessly competitive about it. So I'm hoping that Neil's had a few too many cocktails on the beach. He's going to put Mark Marquez back into his team and I've still got a chance. And uh, we'll be keeping an eye on it for the rest of this uh, season. But there's also been some of some of the performers in our league are actually right up there in the global league as well. So there is some really good competition in it. So check out the Paddock Pass Podcast Fantasy League as well. And like I said, check out patreon.com forward slash Paddock Pass Podcast to become a Paddock Insider and get our Paddock Note shows through the course of the weekend. So David, Adam, David and Adam will be back next week to review the Sepang Grand Prix and uh, we'll have Neil back in tow for that as well as we move towards the end of the 2023 MotoGP season. 